Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar, as well as our guest for this episode, Ricky Gerbitz. Ricky has recently released a documentary that Chris and I thought would be of interest to you folks. The Accountant of Auschwitz examines the 2014 trial of Oskar Gröning. Now, Gröning was an SS guard responsible for the property confiscated from Jews sent to the camp, and some of you actually may already know him from the 2005 BBC documentary Auschwitz, The Nazis and the Final Solution. Grinning came to public attention because of his attempts to convince Holocaust deniers. In fact, he directly confronted them in the documentary with his words, quote, I saw the gas chamber, I saw the crematoria, I saw the open fires. I would like you to believe that these atrocities happened because I was there. Now, these public appearances formed in part the basis of his 2014 prosecution, and Ricky's new documentary explores how the case against Gröning became possible in the first place. In the process, she raises thorny moral issues around collective guilt and the pursuit of justice for crimes committed a lifetime ago. I actually had the pleasure of hearing Ricky discuss her film in a Q&A after it was screened at the War Museum here in Ottawa. And we were doubly lucky in the audience there because one of the survivors who worked with the prosecution that she interviewed actually was on stage to be part of the discussion with the audience. For those of you who listen regularly, you will know that her wartime experiences as a Hungarian Jew conscripted into the forced labor program would be of particular interest to Chris. And so I actually managed to pose some questions on his behalf while we were there. So the plan today is a two-parter. First, there's going to be a new section where I'm going to recount those experiences to Chris. Unfortunately, I didn't have a microphone to actually record the Q&A, but I did take good notes. So first, we'll go over that, and then after, we'll get straight into the interview with Ricky. Without further ado, though, the news. All right. Well, I thought there might be a special treat today for the news segment. I recently had the good fortune to attend a screening of The Accountant of Auschwitz, which is about the Oscar Gröning trial that recently occurred in Germany. Anyway, I attended the screening at the Canadian War Museum, where the director and one of the Auschwitz survivors appeared for the Q&A. I asked a question on behalf of Chris while I was there because when the survivor started talking about her experience, it turned out that she was involved in the labor deployment program. So I figured you might find that interesting, Chris. Yeah, I, I've got to say I'm pretty curious. Uh, what did uh, the she, the survivor? She, 
Yep. She, uh, what, what did she tell you? Where, where was she deployed? What did she do? Uh, I don't know if the Q and a was recorded to check this somewhere, but she herself was a Hungarian part of the Hungarian Jewish deportation and was about like in her mid teens when it occurred. So she has one of these rather harrowing selection ramp stories at Auschwitz. So she was part of the summer 1944 deportation. And she was the reason that she appeared at the trial. The reason she's in the documentary is because she was one of the witnesses to testify, to provide evidence of what was happening for the prosecution during the deportations there and to place grinning on the platform. So Anyway, she arrived there in summer of 1944. Her family was divided. And of course, her mother and father were older than she was. She was young, teenager, healthy, ready for labor. And so her parents were put into the other line. And she and some of her cousins were put into the line to be taken into the camp. So she was going to follow her mother when she was moved back over by a young soldier back into the the camp line. So that was, she never really knew what had happened to her family. She, her cousins had known basically what was happening, but saw that that was one of the things that she was holding on to this idea that she would be reconnected with her parents at a later date. So they kept it from her until after liberation. That comes later, though, because at the time that she entered the camp, she actually only spent, I think it was, I forget if it was a three-week or a three-month period in Auschwitz before she was sent on the labor deployment program. So she was part of basically a consignment of labor that was sent to an old Volkswagen production facility where parts for the V3 rockets were being stamped and uh, landmines as well. So basically she was a, she was a sheet metal operator. Uh, I asked her basically just to recount her experiences and the narrative that she provided was, was really quite interesting. After she left Auschwitz, the place that she was taken to was uh, a sort of dormitory that had been, I couldn't tell from what she was saying whether it had been purpose constructed or not, but the dormitory was serving as one of these kind of extended uh, labor prisons because it was right across the street from the factory where she was working during the day. So she had been given the wooden clogs and this light summer dress while she was at Auschwitz. And the sort of luck that came into one, being part of a labor, uh, labor assignment and two, being part of the right setting so that she didn't develop a sickness because the dormitory where she was kept during the day or during the nights where she slept was actually also attached to where the guards, the, the women guards who watched over the labor slept. So the heating for the whole building was on. So she came from, as she she said, when she arrived from Auschwitz, she felt like she'd checked into the Hilton because all of a sudden she went from Auschwitz and the kind of watery broth that was served there to having soup that had dumplings or pieces of meat every now and then to provide the energy to do the labor. She was somewhere where there were tile floors and it was heated through the winter. 
which was incredibly important because she was not assigned other clothes. She was still wearing her uh, kind of like the light summer dress that she still had from Auschwitz. So at this point, she described actually working in the factory, which resembled very closely the kind of militarization of the workplace in the late war that you were describing in the, uh, at, the, at the facilities uh, run by Krupp. So she was in charge of operating one of these stations to shape the metal for the various parts as it came along. And she first tried, you know, these kind of small acts of resistance in doing a go slow. And so she basically let the pieces pile up and process them at a slower rate, but there were the patrolling guards there. And one of them came by and saw this huge pile of materials at her workbench that she had not been processing at the appropriately determined speed, right? And as punishment, he had her go stand by the loading bay for the factory. So this is the middle of winter, 1944-45, and she is still wearing a light summer dress. And she's sent to basically just go freeze in the loading bay area for not performing work up to appropriate speeds, which I, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting form of labor discipline that doesn't tend to get caught in the sources. So at this point, she had these, these kind of like moments that she remembered. Uh, the other one was that there was a young French prisoner of war who was working at the station across from her, who was actually the one who gave her the information that the allies were approaching. So uh, there was a, he had a little piece of balled up paper. One of the things that the guards did was that they made sure that people were focused on the work at the station, that there was no conversation between the different workers uh, who were there on the labor deployment program. And he kind of like tossed her the little piece of paper. And that's when she found out he, it said like, hold, you know, hold out the allies are coming or the allies will be here soon. Or, you, uh, you know, liberation is coming something along those lines. So that is what I can remember from the specifics of what she told us. Her liberation narrative was that she was involved in the, the movements of labor at the end of the war. She was picked up and they were moved from one place to another. I forget exactly where she said that, whether it was on a march or not. But either way, she was sitting there with her cousins. And all of a sudden, somebody walks by headed in the other direction. And uh, they're going like, well, what's going on? And this person says, oh, don't you know, the war is over. We've been liberated. And they're like, you know, okay that person's lost it. And then a larger group goes by and then more and more people start going by and they're like, okay, well, we have to investigate this. That's the moment when they sort of found out that they were free. There was, uh, I think it was Americans, she said, that liberated them. And there was a huge problem, as you know, with the uh, nutrition after liberation. People were no longer capable of processing solid foods because of the malnutrition and kind of surviving on this very thin existence for a long time. And they were warned about this. And so they tried very carefully not to have this happen. But as she described it, even being as abstemious as they were in how much they were eating, 
there was massive digestion issues. And so she said the, the dormitory where they then moved to was just absolutely covered in diarrhea. And basically people would eat and then just it would go straight through them because their body no longer was capable of processing it. So that sort of horror show lasted for a little while. And at that point, I think she returned to her aunt and uncle and people, other people in the audience, that's where her narrative of kind of from my question had ended. And other people in the audience at that point asked her about her relationship with memory and other survivors. And she said that when she met her aunt and uncle after the war, and she went to their their abode, wherever it was, that they asked her about what her experiences had been. And she they talked about it once, and then it was never mentioned again. And that in subsequent years, after she moved to Canada and spoke to other survivors, sometimes the names of the locations would be mentioned, but nothing else was ever discovered, or nothing else was ever discussed, excuse me. So people were asking her how she had dealt with it. And her answer was essentially to focus on the idea that every day she was getting up and this was a fresh experience and that otherwise these experiences remain, the, the negative experiences of being a slave laborer remained repressed, that she would wake up with these nightmares and things like this, but that they, she never acknowledged them. She refused to acknowledge them until about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when the present shift in the situation in the world made her feel that she was nearing the end of her life. She felt obligated to go out and discuss her experiences in the world. So, yeah. Uh sounds like a, a pretty fascinating talk and uh, from what you're telling me her experience does seem to be very much uh, in line with what uh, a lot of other young women from Hungary who happened to be Jews in the summer of 1944 uh, went through so many of them wound up getting wrapped up in this this forced labor program and it was to some extent an improvement in in their living conditions even as they were were becoming slaves that concentration camp prisoners in in the sub camps working on production rather than construction tended to have a better standard of living tended to have a better chance of surviving uh, and uh, women as well including jews did tend to uh, have a better chance of of making it making it through the whole crucible uh, alive. Well, I was just blown away by the contingency in it, right? That she's lucky enough, one, to be selected for labor, two, that she's lucky enough to be selected for labor in Germany, and three, that she's lucky enough to be deployed somewhere that has internal heating. Mm -hmm. Because she's she's not issued anything else. She's still running around in this summer dress as the, the discipline story shows, right? And you know, how bad could it have gone? How easily, you know, a particularly cold period or you're at a dormitory that doesn't have heating or you're trying to survive on a little coal fired stove and 
you get pneumonia or something, right? You can't work anymore. Then what? Although you do have to wonder if those conditions, if those contingencies uh, had changed, if, I mean, the firm that has an interest in her staying alive to keep on working would have provided a jacket in the absence of uh, a heated place to stay. True. Remember what the motivation of the captors is. It's about extracting value. Yeah. Also, the fact that the news of liberation came from particularly a French foreign worker kind of coincided with what you see in the Gestapo reports about concerns about this particular subset of forced labor as being particularly active in organizing itself or being or maintaining contact with the outside world. And it also shows just how much the barriers between concentration camp prisoners and prisoners of war or civilian forced laborers had broken down, that they're, they're on the same work site, that they're able to communicate with each other, uh, even if maybe they have to be a bit covert about it. But these populations that had been very different and separated for a long time are just starting to mash together. The discipline, I thought, was interesting as well, because it was much milder than I was expecting. Obviously, this is a first act of non-conformity. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is uh, a woman rather than a man. Obviously, this is a, a source of labor that you don't want to, that you want to provide that labor rather than injuring in some way so that you're losing productivity. But that that choice to kind of send a one-time message that if you're not going to provide the work, we can put you out in the cold, right? That that was quite an interesting thing. I'd never heard of anything. I, I like think that I think here you gotta you gotta ask who is applying that discipline. Uh, I don't know. You said this was a Volkswagen roving guard. Uh, it, it's it's yeah. It's um it's Volkswagen and it's one of the roving guards. So it might just be. Uh, German, who's part of the yeah, the factory could, squad, could be the 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 factory guard. Uh, also, the the case for Krupp, which I think is generalizable, is that when these subcamps are set up on industry property, the existing staff of the company were sent off and trained as guards, and then acted in that capacity. So they weren't old school death head guys; they were German workers who had maybe served in, in the factory guard uh, and were kind of conscripted into the concentration camp or subcamp guard. Right. It just, it sort of reminded me very much of more civilian discipline, like the Japanese practice of having children, misbehaving children stand with buckets of water in the hallway and things like that. Right. Like something to cause discomfort. Yeah. It's in the corner. Don't play down that could very easily be lethal. Well, I'm not, that's what I'm saying is like having somebody stand in the hallway for an hour holding onto two buckets of water, that's a stress position, right? That causes pain. So it's not, but it's not a beating, right? That, and that, that was sort of, I, to your point, true. I wasn't thinking about the source. I'm thinking about the, the institution and the labor not which point in the supply chain, if you will, we're, we're operating at. And who's who's the one dispensing the discipline? But but interesting, nevertheless. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just struck by uh, how similar this story is to the Hungarian Jewish women that worked at Krupp. Really? 
oh yeah. When they got to their first industrial assignment, you know, they, they have a bed for the first time uh, that they also did not get new clothing until February, until right before they were evacuated, that they rode the winter out in their, their thin gray dresses. Hmm. What about the, what were the conditions like for housing? You say they had beds, were they heated dormitories or what? Uh, I believe their facilities on the Humboldtstrasse were good until they got bombed. Right. The bombing was causing as much hardship for them on the ground as anything else. Hmm. Well, anything else about this? No, but I sure would like to meet her. It's quite an experience. Well, we will soon be talking to her interlocutor, uh, Ricky Gerwitz, and we can learn more then. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Welcome, everybody. Uh, We have Ricky Gerwitz with us today to tell us about a documentary that she was a producer on, The Accountant of Auschwitz. So, Ricky, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, First off, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. What I did do before I did the documentary, I was a producer, a news producer at CTV, which is a Canadian broadcaster. And so so I've kind of been in journalism for about 10 years. And then I quit my job to make the film, uh, which I did for three years. I back in the workforce. I now produce a show that focuses on the stock market. So vastly different to my prior endeavors. (laughs) So you have no doubt an interesting story of how you come to this topic through such a winding path. What I suppose is your origin story, if you will, how do you get from being a journalist at CTV and find yourself working on a documentary about an accountant at a Nazi death camp? Okay, so um, I've always been interested in the Holocaust and how we learn about it. I went, in 2013, I went on this trip called the March of the Living, Mm -hmm. which takes students to the ghettos and death camps in Poland with survivors. And it was a really eye-opening experience. And I also have always very much been interested in history. That was my major in university. And I think it's, it just explains so much of what goes on uh, in the world today. And news. News is always, obviously, I mean, I've worked in news for so long. It's been, I'm a bit of a news junkie. So kind of put this all together and it almost seems like a natural fit. I was working as a producer, as I mentioned, and I came across this kind of headline, get these ticker headlines at the beginning of the day, like what's making news around the world. And one of the ticker headlines was a 94-year-old former SS officer goes on trial in Germany for 300,000 counts of accessory to murder. And my first thought, of course, was, well, he's guilty. There's no question. And then I started to read more about his story and, uh, you know, the specific man, Oscar Groening, his life story, his time at Auschwitz. Uh, I also learned more about the legal proceedings that precipitated this trial, so how this trial came to be. And it made me kind of start to think or try to like look at the trial from both sides. It made me see that there were actually two sides here, and I could probably argue both of them. Um, And that was kind of what I wanted to make the film about, is to unpack and explore kind of the moral and legal questions surrounding war crimes, how we prosecute them and who is complicit in them, because I think that 
it can really help us moving forward and how we digest the crimes that are taking place even now. So that's kind of how it all started. And then I, I just got deeper and deeper into it. And also the more research I did, the more interested I became, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know, there's a lot more to it than just the trial. And like once I was in, I was in, you know, I'm one of those people I dive in and I dive in head first. And I was very fortunate that the people who came on board, the director, the editor, my co-producer and executive producer were so, you know, each one brought an amazingly different uh, skill to the team. And we had like a really great group to to bring it all together. Everyone kind of helped in tackling this massive project. How do you get a project like this started in the first place? So, so you saw this story, something that intrigued you. What were the steps that you had to go through to start thinking about turning it into a reality? So... That's when my naivete kind of worked in my favor. You know, I just, when I started this and I was like, oh, you know what? I'll take six months off work. I'll make a film. I'll go back to work. It'll be great. I had no concept of the difficulty, not only creatively, but also financially in making a film. It's, especially in Canada, it's almost, it's almost impossible. And I think to to the detriment of the film industry in Canada, because I think a lot of people are deterred from making films because it's so hard. And so, so I started kind of with no money and luckily had some investors early on that let me quit my job because I worked up until I got some money. And then I just didn't make money for a while. I was lucky I had a partner who did and I have a partner. He's still my partner. <laughs> um, hear it. But it took like a really long time to raise the money and we decided to move forward filming. Most people like wait to raise the money before they start filming, but we decided that we didn't have the luxury of doing that because time was not on our side. We had to go to the trial. You know, the survivors are getting older. The story was being told right now. We didn't, we couldn't wait. And so it, it was a very unusual way of doing it. Like usually you wait, but we just didn't. And we, we all just didn't get paid for a really long time. You must have really believed in this project if you were willing to go all out like that and stick with it when it sounds like it was a quick start and maybe a little rocky. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. If you're making a film like this, like any film, you really have to believe in it. And you have to want to like do this 24 hours a day. You are in this world and there's nothing else, right? And like I said before, my naivete worked almost in my favor because if I had really stopped to think about all the roadblocks that would be in my way, I probably wouldn't have made the film. But because I was so inexperienced and so green and so idealistic, I was just like, oh yeah, it'll all work out. It'll be great. And uh, it didn't all work out. I mean, it didn't all work out when I needed it to work out, but in the end, it did all come together. So, and and it is great. Yes, it's seconded. It worth it. Thank you, thank you. My bank account disagrees, but I appreciate that. <laughs> this, as you say, is a matter of time and place. And if you weren't going to do it, nobody was. So, you know, good thing you did. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. No, I have no regrets. I mean, I'm very glad that I followed my passion in this, and it's very fulfilling. You know, when you do something that you love that you feel like you can connect with the audience, like other people. It's a very satisfying feeling. So I feel very lucky. Well, we've both done PhDs, so we're very we're very in touch with the whole sacrificing for your art side of things. So Yes, and not getting paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, pity parties aside, there's a lot to unpack in this thing. 
if you give us the broad strokes though, mm -hmm. who was Oscar Groening and what is this documentary about? So Oscar Groening, uh, like I mentioned before, um, kind of the overview of him was he's a, a, an old Nazi. So he's still, he's still alive in 2015 and at the age of, 18, he went to Auschwitz as an SS officer. He worked there for three years until 1944, where he was transferred to the West to fight and he was captured. And then he moved back to Germany um, after the war. He lived by all respects a very decent life. He was actually an honorary judge in his hometown. He worked at a bank, he had a family and everything was kind of back to normal. It's as normal, I guess, as things can be after something like that, until about the year 1985. Uh, he belonged to a stamp collection club. And at this club, there were Nazis, neo-Nazis at this club, and Holocaust deniers. And they said, they were talking about how the Holocaust never happened. And he actually stood up to them and he said, actually, I know it happened because I was there and I saw it and I witnessed it. And from there, he kind of became more outspoken about it and uh, people started writing about him. And then fast forward to 2005, he actually gave two interviews that proved to be fatal in his case, uh, not mortally fatal, I just mean for his legacy, because he gave an interview to the BBC and to Der Spiegel in Germany talking about what he did at the camp. Now, at the time, uh, the legal situation in Germany didn't allow for men like him to be prosecuted, so he was safe. Now, with all this having been said, I do need to bring up where the legal uh, issues stand in, in Germany. So after the war, um, you know, as you can imagine, there were a lot of war criminals living in Germany. Uh, many of them escaped. We know of many famous cases like Joseph Mengele and Adolf Eichmann, but many of them stayed and they went back to living their regular, normal life. What happened was in Germany after the war is that, first of all, there was no appetite to prosecute these men because they had just fought a war where their country was decimated. Uh, they just wanted to kind of be able to like live and eat, you know, uh, putting people on trial, their own people on trial was not something that was a high priority. So many of these people just went back to their normal life and gathered and picked up where, where they left off. Also, at the same time, you know, when we think about post-war Germany, we think, oh, like this dawn of the new age. Well, no, in fact, many of the former uh, Nazis who were, or former members of government who were Nazis pre-war just went back into government after war. Um, you know, when, when most of the government is Nazis, you can't then, or as part of the Nazi party, how do you then start a new government without without them? Because there's no one... I mean, everyone, then everyone's like 18 years old, right? With no experience. So they ha there had to be kind of a level of, of forgiveness and forgetting to, to kind of get Germany back on track. The other side of the coin is, and again, this is brought up in the film, is that, you know, there's 800,000 SS officers. What do you do? Do you prosecute them all? How do you, how do you even put that many people behind bars? How do you move on as a country? And I think this is an interesting point because... When you look at other genocides that have taken place before or since, you know, people get a, uh, talk a lot about prosecution, but when you 
perhaps, and this is something we can talk about when you prosecute to a, a enormous scale, the country can't move on and the country will collapse. So you saw to a lesser extent in Germany post-World War One, the country fell apart because of these very strong reparations, right? And that's what led to the rise of Hitler. And Germany today is a thriving democracy, likely because they were given the ability to move past World War II. Does that make sense? It's certainly something that I, Chris and I argue about frequently and generally <laughs> present that view. Uh-huh. Okay. I don't necessarily think that it's right that they didn't prosecute these people. I'm just giving you the backstory. But it may have been pragmatic that they didn't prosecute everybody, right? Yeah, there were many reasons, but not for also, I mean, the law, so the law was very interesting in Germany, where you could only prosecute people based, it wasn't a war crime, it was based on murder. So you had to show that person A killed person B, and not only that, like, you had to prove that it was at this time, on this date, in this area, with this weapon, because think of it how hard it is to prosecute a murder charge, right? So it's not like a war crime where you were, you know, culpable because you were there. You ha- It was a murder. And not only that, but in Germany, uh, different to many other countries, you actually have to prove criminal intent. So you have to show that you were motivated by hatred, which is very difficult to do. And that explains why so many of them got off. And to even add salt to that wound, many of the judges who were putting these men on trial were former Nazis. So they had no interest in doing this to their own, so to speak. So there were all these forces conspiring to make sure that almost no one got convicted in Germany. Out of the 800,000 SS officers, only 124 ever served a life sentence. Uh, You know, as we go into in the film, many of the worst perpetrators got about three years in prison and then went back to normal life and actually many of them got pensions because of their service to the country which is you know abhorrent so this was especially if you're trying to convict someone who killed someone during in the camp setting it's like okay you need witnesses right so but most of the witnesses are survivors so let's say after the war they bring a witness and put them on stand like and they ask them okay tell me the date the time that this happened well the witness didn't even know the year because they're in a state of trauma so all of a sudden they become faulty witnesses and it just makes it it was it was almost like every roadblock was in the way to make these trials successful and move forward i didn't hate the jews i was following orders exactly which many of them said right because how do you prove criminal um, that he, they hated them right unless the only way that they could do it is if they proved that there was almost unwarranted cruelty. So the people that did get, that were put on trials kind of unsuccessfully convicted were the ones who were the torturers because they, they could prove that they actually had like, were motivated by like, they were uncommonly cruel and motivated by hatred. But the ones who were just, you know, putting people in the gas chambers, you can't prove anything other than they were following orders. So if those people aren't getting, if the people who are actually doing the killing are not being put on trial, then the Oscar Gronings, who is a, who was a, a guard at the camp, he was a bookkeeper and he was a guard uh, to prevent people from running away and to make sure that the um, system ran smoothly. If he's, uh, if the other people aren't being punished, then sure enough, he's certainly not on the list. 
left, right? So he was completely absolved of any guilt. He just kind of went on to his normal life. In fact, all of his superiors at Auschwitz were never prosecuted. Maybe you could tell us about the Demyanyuk trial and how that changed the game for how prosecution of Nazi war criminals happened, and also the bearing that has on the reliability of eyewitness testimony. Yes. Okay. So that's what I'm coming to. So so uh, all this to say that in Germany, there was a terrible record. Most of the former SS officers lived there in plain sight, did not change their names, just kept on going, okay, after the war. and. This kind of changed uh, with the prosecution of John Zemyanuk in 2011. So John Zemyanuk was a guard at Sobibor, which is a death camp. And in, in the 1970s, the American authorities found out that he lied on his immigration card uh, when he came to the U.S. And they found that he had put on his immigration card that he'd come from Sobibor, which was a death camp. So they started to connect the dots. So what happened was they started interviewing survivors and survivors started identifying him not as the guard at Sobibor, but as this guard at Treblinka. So Treblinka is a death, another death camp, but he was identified as this man named Ivan the Terrible. So he wasn't just a regular guard at Treblinka. The witnesses identified him as this really sadistic man, a man who took pleasure in beating prisoners, who every prisoner was afraid of. His name was Ivan the Terrible. So when they found out that this was Ivan the Terrible that, you know, had caused so much pain and suffering, they actually extradited him to Israel. Israel wanted to put him on trial. In their eyes, he was the next Eichmann because he was so bad. And if you know anything about Israeli prosecutions, they've only ever given one death sentence in his uh, in trial in the history of country's existence, and that was to Adolf Eichmann. So John Demyanuk went to was extradited to Israel. He's claiming the whole time, "I'm not Ivan the Terrible. You have the wrong guy. I'm not Ivan the Terrible." The witnesses testify in court. You're him. I know his look. I know his eyes. I see you. And he is convicted and sentenced to death. The second person in Israel. Now, this all was happening in the late 80s, which also happened to coincide with the fall of the Soviet Union, which is interesting because when the Soviet Union fell, documents became available to the outside world, outside of the Soviet Union. And one of the documents revealed that Ivan the Terrible was a completely other Ivan. It was a guy named Ivan Nepacherenko, sorry. And he died after the war in the Soviet Union. So Ivan Demyanuk, who is currently waiting his death sentence in Israel, was not that guy. It was a huge embarrassment to the country of Israel. But also, as you mentioned before, it showed the problem in using eyewitness testimony. Because these people, it happened 40 years ago, and they're in a state of trauma. They, you know, how can they necessarily remember the exact person who committed these crimes? Like, they're, they obviously look different from 40 years before. Um, so John Demiano got sent back to the United States. Now, fast forward to 2009, when the United States prosecutors decide, okay, you know what? He might not have been Ivan the Terrible, but he was still a terrible Ivan. And by that, they mean 
he was still a guard at Sobibor, the original place where he said he came from. Therefore, we should have reason to send him to Germany to face trial. So they met with German prosecutors, and they convinced German prosecutors to prosecute him as an accessory to murder. Because, because... He helped the death camp run. He kept prisoners from running away. He kept them orderly so that they could walk to the gas chambers to their death. He was, by any definition in any kind of Western democracy, he was an accessory to murder. So they put him on, successfully, they agreed to do this. They put him on trial in Germany. He was convicted. He was found guilty for the death of, I think it was 70,000 Jews. and. This was huge. This was this was the breaking the the kind of turning point because his death made it so that anyone who was at a death camp, any guard, could be prosecuted now, and that widened the whole net. You know, before you're working with a tiny, small, little hole. Now it's an entire net. But of course, this is 2011. Most of the SS officers and are are dead, right? So who's left? And Oscar Groning is one of the only ones left. And how did the prosecutors hear about him? Because of the interview he does with BBC in 2005. So for our listeners, actually, one of the interviews where Groning speaks about his time at Auschwitz can be seen in the BBC series Auschwitz. And of course, from the Demjanjuk case, you get the jurisprudence that allows you to pursue Groning. Right. And it's very interesting because you think, okay, not that Groning's not guilty, he is, and he did a terrible thing, but at the same time, like, none of his superiors were ever punished. Demyanuk's superiors were never punished. Most of the people who were did things way worse than Demyanuk and Groning were never punished. So in a way, Groning and Demyanuk are punished because they outlived the others. They made it to old age. So does that mean they shouldn't? No, they should still be punished, but it does kind of add this extra layer of, like, well, is it fair? Well, you're raising the thorny moral issues here. So I suppose having now laid out the grand scope of how we get from the beginning of this through to the point where you have Oscar Grinning in front of a court, what were your thoughts headed into the project? And by the time you've, you've worked through all of this and you, you, you arrive at this point, how did your thinking change over time? So, you know, I get this question a lot and I have to say I could argue both sides still. I mean, I, I'm not convinced either way. I see everyone wants to look at the world black and white. I think that this trial shows that this is actually very much a gray area. And often it depends on where you come from, what your history is, if you have relatives in the Holocaust or if you're from Germany. You know, you're, you're often, often colored by your own experiences and your own his, family history. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, what I wanted to do with this film is kind of present the different arguments and all the facts and let perhaps the audience kind of challenge their preconceived beliefs about what they felt and debate and discuss them. That was, that was my objective in the film. But I personally uh, am trying to stay away from having an opinion. Well, just to start, though, what did you expect to find when you went in? Because that's always the interesting question for historians, right? We, we come up with our research question. And then we head to the archives and no research question survives contact with the sources. You get in there and all of a sudden you have to deal with the messy reality of what you're finding. Right. So I, I suppose what, what was your mindset when you were headed into this project? Do you still remember at this point? 
my mindset was the same as <laughs> I have to say, like, I found a lot of information out. That's true. Like you say, like, you really never know what you're, what, especially when you make a film, like, you don't know what you're going to get. So, you, like, everything kind of comes together in the editing process, and you're often surprised by the footage that you end up getting. So, really, I, I, I don't think my opinion has changed. I think it depends on who I speak to. When I speak to survivors and I hear their stories, or, you know, after we filmed them, I felt very sympathetic to them. Then when I, you know, speak to some historians or law experts, I think, you know, well, this isn't exactly fair. Or if I speak to some Germans who feel, you know, I'm, I'm very much, I I'm, see it from a lot of different viewpoints. So it actually hasn't changed. Like I went in it with an open mind and I kind of still feel like I have an open mind. Well, you have a, a lot of different personalities that pop up throughout the documentary. Did you select them to represent some of these different viewpoints? Yes, that was important. We didn't want to have a narrator. We wanted the audience, uh, sorry, the characters to tell the story. And it was important for us to show the arguments coming from kind of reputable, smart, you know, opinionated people. Uh, Peter Singer, one of them, Alan Dershowitz, you know, uh, Lawrence Douglas. So, so yeah, that was that was intentional. And how did you go about finding the people that could speak to these different positions? Uh, How did you decide who should be included and who shouldn't? Well, so the first thing when you want to make a film or do kind of anything, and I'm sure you guys know this, when you want to, this is like number one rule of journalism is like read, 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 right? So the minute I got into this topic, I read a lot about it. And when you read about stuff, you kind of, you see people who comment on them or who've done a lot of research on it. For instance, Lawrence Douglas, he wrote a book about Damiano. He knew this stuff inside out. He commented a lot on both cases. So I knew he was a natural fit. And then you also see names popping up constantly or people keep telling you who are in that world. Keep saying, have you spoken to Eli Rosenbaum? Do you know Eli Rosenbaum? And you think, okay, who is this Eli Rosenbaum, right? And so, so you've got to look for like patterns and also with like Dershowitz, I knew how he felt because I know how I, I read what he's written about these things. Um, with Peter Singer, I didn't know for sure, but I had an inkling based on a previous interview he had given about Nazi war criminals. I thought, and, and just based on his like philosophy, I thought that he might have an interesting perspective and he, he certainly did. He really, he, he brought like a really important kind of uh, a, um, a take to, to the trial that I think was kind of not very common, like um, wasn't shared by many people in the film. So yeah, just doing kind of a lot of research. Of course, there were a lot of people who we, who we, who we interviewed that we didn't include in the film for like reasons of time and uh, repetition. Yeah. So, so that was uh, just, you know, researching, doing a lot of research and finding out who the experts are and what opinions are out there and, you know, how do they balance each other. Were you uh, doing the interviews uh, with all of these narrators yourself? Yes. Yeah? Well, so that must have been uh, quite, quite a, an exciting experience to be able to, to sit down with uh, so many interesting people. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. But, of course... Uh, this is a very sensitive and politically and emotionally charged topic. 
how did you kind of navigate the uh, the troubles of uh, asking people that are so deeply invested to bear their feelings about this? So the people who I felt the most kind of emotionally connected to and worried about were the survivors. Um, and that was because they had a very specific, you know, they were very steadfast in their views. And I didn't want them to think that we weren't being sympathetic to them. So, but we were also really close with them and we were really honest with them and, and from the beginning. And we said, you know, we wanted, the point is to show both sides and part of them saw both sides. Like I think that they, some of them, they've said that to me, maybe not in the film, but they've said like they can see where we're coming from or what the other argument would be. So honestly, I think that if you approach it in like a really respectful way um, that you're trying to kind of promote open dialogue and get everyone's views out there, then I think you'll be okay. And we were, and I was a little bit nervous for them to see the film, but they loved it. So, um, I feel very fortunate. Can I ask you, what was your impression of Benjamin Ferencz? I, I think that he's a fascinating figure. I, I did my master's thesis on his first trial, the Einsatzgruppen trial, and I was so happy to see that you had included him uh, in the documentary. What was your uh, impression of him? Um, I think my impression of him was the same as everyone else, which is that I just adored him. Um, he is the sweetest, loveliest, littlest man. Um, but he's also so passionate and like smart, like he's a hundred years old and he just, he is so on the ball and he really kind of instills, he's one of those people and there's not many of them that like really instill like passion in people. Like he's very inspiring just to be around him and hear the way he talks and how he's so he's so full of emotion, even now 75 years later, like when he talks about the trial, he still, it still riles him up. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, I'll never forget that. That was, that was a real highlight of making this film. Again, as you mentioned, you meet some, some incredible people and he was definitely at the top, one of the top of the list and just having that wealth of history before me, you know, like, as I mentioned, I'm a history major I was a history major you guys are obviously know all about it and having someone who's like basically lived through this huge milestone history is like pretty amazing thing because created international criminal law yeah I mean he's he's one of the reasons the international criminal court exists that we have universal criminal law and you got to hear him do deliver the the address to the court too in person, like that's yeah. You you are you are you are part of a privileged few, I must say. Yeah, well, I mean, he's just he's amazing. It was like a real honor to be uh, in his presence, and his message is still like really profound, and it hasn't he hasn't stopped. He's still fighting the good fight, and I could tell you so much more about him that makes it like just be beyond the fact that he was a Nuremberg prosecutor at the age of twenty seven. Um, I could tell you so much more about his life that would make you just you know kind of respect him even more than you would have thought. And what was the uh, position that he took on the Groening case? Does he see justice here? Uh, yeah, he thinks he should be punished. He thinks anyone, because of course he liberated the camps. I forgot to mention that part. So he was very emotional talking about that. He liberated the camps. He saw firsthand what, what uh, the kind of devastation that, that was there. And so he thinks anyone who's there is guilty and therefore Groening must be punished. Now, it's interesting, though, he also says in the film, I mean, he contradicts himself a little bit because he says that he couldn't prosecute 
all the men who were responsible back in 1947 because if he had, he'd still be prosecuting Nazis to this day. So it is interesting because, of course, back then they had to choose. But now it's anyone who's alive, right? If they had used the same legal reasoning they use now, then they would still be prosecuting Nazis to this day. Uh, Another of the contributors to the documentary is Alan Dershowitz. And uh, he's kind of, uh, rather than Mm. looking to the past, like Ferenc does, uh, he's looking to the future and and talking about how Mm. uh, this case with Groening could set a precedent that would uh, deter genocide in the future. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, his position and, and how it was different? Yeah, so Alan Dershowitz, he took a pretty hard stance. He still thinks Groening's guilty, but he does see that there are elements of um, redemption in Groening, like the fact that he stood up to Holocaust deniers, the fact that he actually said in court, like, I was there, I did it, and he, and he, and he testified, which if you know anything about the history of Nazi war crime prosecutions, like almost none of them ever admitted to being there. They never testified in court. They just said they were following orders. So Dershowitz points out the uniqueness of Groening and that there was some kind of redemptive qualities. He still thinks he should be punished. But he does talk about the future and the fact that this can really help set a precedent. And that's kind of how he wanted to end the film is like to ask the audience, what is the point of these trials that are taking place right now still still going on on my dad is it to deter others from participating in war crimes doesn't have that effect what are we hoping to achieve by doing that the slogan of never again is obviously somewhat meaningless because of everything that's happened since 1945 so Dershowitz kind of talks about he basically says that like at least he is doing Groening's prosecution can help in the fight of never again. As you say, you try to avoid shaping the audience's opinion toward any particular outcome in that respect. You do present all of this in the documentary without guiding, but as an individual, having gone through this, what do you think? Okay, so it's funny. I am asked that a lot, and I... Okay, so one of the reasons why I also wanted to make this film was like, what's the point of these trials, right? Like, what... What are we hoping to achieve? Do I think that a child soldier in Africa is going to look at Oscar Groening at the age of 94 and say, oh, you know what? I better not do this because one day, many, many years from now, I could be held accountable. No, I don't think so. Um, I think that's wishful thinking. But I do think that these trials serve other functions. One is for closure for the survivors. I think it's very helpful for them, the ones who've lost loved ones, to be able to speak in a German court and to face their perpetrators after so many years. I also think that this helps to teach and educate people because the Holocaust was a long time ago and it's not in all curriculums anymore and it's not being taught in schools and and to students. And trials that are taking place today now actually can help to re-educate young people. We can use what's going on now in the modern world to talk about what happened in the past. So I think that there's actually a really important um, function that these trials can serve. Well, one of the complications that I raised with Chris when we were discussing this very question before the show was this tends to shut down any options for de-radicalization. As you say, the child soldier or the ISIS fighter who is amped up 
on amphetamines. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be looking at jurisprudence that's set in thinking about whether or not they're going to engage in genocidal behavior. But the educated people who are writing the propaganda or are commanding the groups are either going to be aware of this, or if they become aware of this no surrender policy, they have a very strong tool then to say, look, you crossed the line and we're all going to pay the price because there is no path back for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that, you you know, we might have a point that it might be the leaders who look at this, but I also just think it might be too little too late. You know, if they stop these people, if they brought them to trial while they, this was happening, it might be different, but 70 years later, I don't know that they, it serves as much as a, as much of a warning to them or a detracting factor. Well, the the threat of prosecution did change people's behavior at the end of the Second World War when the the Allies started dropping flyers saying that they were going to prosecute war criminals. The behavior of of some Germans changed, and mm-hmm. those who had been say concentration subcamp guards started treating people better because they were looking to the post-war world or the huge numbers of foreign foreign laborers in some cases started getting food from people that might want them as kind of a character reference after everything was done Mm -hmm. Um, so there there is evidence that the notion that war will be prosecuted yeah that it has an effect Yes, of course. But that's Im- an, an imminent threat of prosecution, right? It's not 70 years down the line. Sure. Right. So if you make the threat and don't follow through, is there going to be the same tendency to respond to the threat later on? Right. Um, and it does seem like a, something like this trial might at least uh, be a gesture towards fulfilling that promise to prosecute. I hope so. It's interesting. The new generation in Germany really is made up of people, like the young generation really wants to make up for sins of their grandparents. And it's they're, they're the ones who lead the charge in these trials nowadays. The older generation just wants, like, first of all, they have family members who were perpetrators, but they also just want to move on. So it is interesting, like, this new generation of people who have, like, no tolerance towards it. And I think you can also see the remnants of that with, like, not the remnants of that, but you know, you look at the refugee policy in Germany, and it is, in my opinion, a direct result of the Holocaust. The generate now, the modern political belief in Germany is, you know, we did this terrible thing, and we're not going to make the same mistake again. Uh, and then we, you know, let's be welcoming to these refugees who are seeking kind of a better life. But of course, you get the flip side, which is the rise of the right against this policy. So it's constant action reaction. Right. And like you were pointing to this tension at your post screening discussion that was held at the War Museum. And as you mentioned at the outset of, uh, of our discussion here is this idea that essentially the pragmatism after the Second World War permitted a type of reconciliation with the past that the revanchism of the First World War or the interwar era and reparations in Versailles and war guilt and everything else that accompanied 1918 right. did not and materially contributed to the rise of Nazism. So mm-hmm. it raises the question of what degree 
of pragmatism, if you're looking ahead to the future, needs to be factored into the resolution of, of crimes against humanity. Because right. as you say, it's a difficult topic. There's victims who are involved who obviously when you talk to somebody who has lived through this, you right. you have to be a pretty cold fish to say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, it's all well and good that you suffered, but the greater good in this is that we have to let this person who was part of this system off the hook. Well, that's, I think you really are, you know, getting to the heart of it, which is what is the necessary steps here? Because on the one hand, you punish everyone who's involved, who probably deserve to be punished. And if you have relatives who are hurt, you're, or you or yourself are a survivor, you want no, you know, no leniency. So do you punish everyone, but then risk the future stability of an entire nation or do you kind of say you know what at a certain point we are going to forgive and forget and move on for the betterment of the, like the future society right like what what wins out there and what is the cost benefit of that have you come to any views on that or chris you have a question well that there was a uh, one of the personalities in the documentary who hit this issue of forgiveness directly, uh, one of the uh, survivors, Core. Yeah, it, she, she said that that she did forgive him for what he'd done, and uh, I understand she she faced some pretty serious pushback for that, right? Yes. Yeah, so Eva's interesting. Like, I mean, she runs a museum that talks a lot about forgiveness and a lot about her past. But the survivors... So the survivors were upset with what she did. And for those listening who haven't seen the film, she forgave him in court and hugged him and in front of everyone. They were upset, not that necessarily that she did that. I mean, of course, it offended them. And, you know, they they were very surprised by it. But I think what, what was what hurt them the most was the way in which she did it. The public view of everyone um, with cameras rolling, they felt that it hijacked the trial and tried to put this kind of neat little nice bow on, on survivor versus perpetrator. You know, it's all forgiven now. And that's the kind of narrative that a lot of newspapers were running with. And they felt, well, that's not, that's not correct. That's not what we feel. That's just one person. Right. So it was kind of the way, the public way in which she did it that effect, that offended them the most. Well, not entirely. I mean, as I remember the woman that you were speaking with at the war museum questioned her sanity. Yes, that's true. She does say in the film though, if that's the way she needs to move on, then that's the way she needs to move on. I mean, there is ambivalence. I, that's what I'm, I suppose what my point is here. I think they, they obviously don't agree with what she did, but at the same time, if they feel that that's what she needs to move on. And also Hetty does question her sanity. And I think that there is something not that she's insane, but first of all, if you, when you can't believe someone does something, you question their sanity because obviously it's so foreign to you, I think. But also, Eva, if you look at her history, she was um, she was tortured by Mengele, right? So at the age of 10, and she lost both her parents in the war. So I'm sure, I'm sure that this, her, you know, time at Auschwitz left like a real mark on her psychology and how she processes things. And so who are we to judge, you know, if that's 
who knows what the kind of damage that did to her long term, right? Well, I, that's my point, though, is that her way of choosing to deal with those emotions is to let them go and process them in a different way mm -hmm. than the other survivors. Yeah. So I hadn't like, it's interesting, the point you're talking about kind of hijacking the public narrative and putting a particular, particular perspective on it, uh -huh. that of course, was very popular on social media, that in no way reflected the, the views of the survivors themselves, or the other survivor, the views of the other survivors, right. I should say. Yeah. But there, there, there's this ambivalence even within their own reactions to it. Because I remember, again, at the museum interview, sorry, was it Hedy? Hedy, yeah. Hedy. Hedy uh, said that when asked what she would say to Groening, her go-to was to say that she respected him for what he had done to stand up for the legacy of the Holocaust to make sure that people knew that it had happened, mm -hmm. while at the same time saying that she could she could never forgive him. Mm -hmm. And the gentleman who died in the course of the production. Bill, yeah. Bill. He himself in the film is at one point says that he would just be happy if he he being grinning would apologize at this point and sort of provide closure in that way. Well, at another point in the film, he goes on to say that he wishes um, that there, there needs to be prosecution at some level for there to be justice. So it's, I don't know where I'm going with this. It's it, the, the tension, like yeah. the tension between these different ways of dealing with that past and that history are, as you say, you can't you can't judge how somebody chooses to deal with that experience. Right. There's no way you can go up to them. And I think, especially with survivors, like in the film, you'll see, or if you talk to them, they're very they conflict themselves a lot because they feel different things at different times. You know, so you know, Bill just wants him to say I'm sorry, and then at the end, he wants him to be guilty but not go to prison and all this other stuff. So it's like, well, which is it? Maybe it's all of those. Maybe it's none of them. It really kind of, he, that's how he, ex you know, he, maybe he just felt many different things at different times. It's not simple, whatever it is. And clearly for, no. for clear reasons. So thank you for coming and joining us today and, and telling us about the documentary. Could you tell our listeners where they can find it if they're interested in checking it out for themselves? Sure. So actually, first of all, thank you for having me. It was a good and in-depth discussion. Um, often we don't get those because it's like the Q&As are so rushed. They're like five minutes. So it's nice to really get at the bigger issues for longer periods of time. For those interested in seeing the film that are in Canada, I believe you can stream it right now. They're offering it on Documentary Channel. Documentary Channel had the rights to it in Canada, and they're now streaming it on their online platform for free. So you can watch it that way. And if you're outside of Canada, we do have it coming, but we can't talk about details yet. So you'll just have to stay tuned. You can go to our website. We usually have updates there, which is accountantofoutfits.com. Well, we will provide details on those as they become available. Okay. But uh, for today, Ricky, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ricky. It was great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast. 
we still don't have any word yet on forthcoming international release dates for the account of Auschwitz, but we will keep you posted as they develop. It's a great primer on post-war justice and the complications of pressing charges for crimes against humanity, imminently suitable for a stimulating classroom discussion. So by all means, do take a look when the opportunity presents itself. In the meantime, we'll be sure to remind you. A brief word on projects coming down the line though. No decision on what the next episode here is going to be about. Chris and I have yet to chat about that. Over at the New Books Network, though, the interview with Jens Meyer Henrik had to be delayed until he has submitted the manuscript for his forthcoming book on the Rwandan genocide. The plan there is for a July release on the authoritarian rule of law. So look forward to that. In the meantime, I've also lined up interviews with Tobias Straumann and Jasper Heinzen, which both promise to be fascinating. Uh, Heinzen has written a cultural history on Prussian state building from 1866 to 1935. But his focus is this link between language and political violence. So his attention to the polarizing effects of violent political rhetoric and how this spills over into radical movements sounds really fascinating. Uh, Straumann has meanwhile done this bang up job with 1931, Debt Crisis and the Rise of Hitler. So for those of you interested in the current rise of populism, definitely one you will not want to miss. The, uh, the main thrust of the book is examining the link between the economic crisis, the failures of decision makers, how they felt constrained at the time of 1931, and the rhetoric surrounding it in the populist movements that contributed to the rise of radical politics. Of course, as usual, I'll try and buttonhole them both into a comment on the contemporary relevance of their work for you folks over here. With that, though, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. We'd like to thank you for joining us, as always, and hope to see you next time. Until then.